Um, I don't know about any of y'all, but I'm getting a little weary already of the presidential election cycle. Um, it's it's nuts. I mean, every news item is about it, and it's not. It's like the election's actually next year. It's a, but so are any of you weary already right now? But all the media coverage and. And I think sometimes with the media cycle, everything is news every day, like really quickly. And I don't know. I mean, it's we still got a year to go. I think the Republican candidates have finally been whittled down to like 50 candidates or something. And I mean, it's going to be a while. It's going to be crazy for the next year. But one of the things about having presidential candidates is everyone is trying to portray themselves in the best light possible. I mean, we might question a few of the candidates. They don't give a rip about how they come off. But most candidates, they want to portray themselves in a way that makes them look good. And part of that means cleaning up the stuff from your past. Part of that means cleaning up how you're perceived, even from when you were a way little kid. And, um, you know, so all this stuff gets dug up. And, you know, sometimes a presidential candidate will be there and then they'll find something from when they were in college. Like, woo, pray. I mean, they're probably thankful there was no Facebook around when they most of them were in college because... Most of us can be president if that were the case. But, you know, trying to clean up past or finding a way to explain why they did what they did or trying to sugarcoat stuff. And, and I think that's fascinating because that's the way of the world, right? We try to put ourselves in the best light possible. But in contrast, when we look at the introduction of Jesus into this world, when we look at how Jesus is introduced at the very beginning of the New Testament in the book of Matthew chapter 1, and, and we'll pull it up here, we find it stark contrast to how often people try to portray themselves. So let me read from the beginning of Matthew chapter 1, where it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And we'll stop there for today. But we're, we're doing this series called Mothers because we're looking at Christ's genealogy here. We're looking at his family tree. And some of you are like, dude, you're doing a whole series on the genealogy? Man, we might as well just open up a phone book and start reading. But, but I think it's fascinating because you find a real mixed bag of folks represented here. You got some good people. You got some shady folks. You got some honorable people and some dishonorable. But the thing that really stands out, and if you knew some biblical history of here, this would like make people go nuts. Uh, Matthew makes a specific point of mentioning four women. And to us, hopefully that doesn't, like, okay, well, what's the big deal? Big deal here, mentioning four women. And the first that we're looking at today is Tamar. And then in the subsequent weeks, we're going to look at Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. And what you have in this genealogy, it's fascinating. You got two prostitutes. You got someone who's a foreigner who's not even Jewish in their genealogy, Ruth. And you got Bathsheba who's an adulteress. These are the mothers of Jesus. These are in the lineage of the God himself coming the form of man to earth. And as we spend the next few weeks looking at the mothers, um, and today we're going to look at Tamar as found in Genesis 38, um, I think God has a lot to speak on the purpose of why this is done this way. Because if they're looking to try to portray in the best light possible, this is probably not the best way to do it, but there's purpose here. And, And particularly today, as we look at Genesis 38, if you grew up, and maybe some of you, you grew up in church, and you grew up thinking, man, the Bible is like the most boring book I've ever read in my life. I, it's just, oh, man, if I need to get a good night's sleep, I'll just open up my Bible and start reading. If that's you, um, either you had really bad Bible teaching in your life, or you probably never heard stories like the one we're about to read today. I and mean, we're going to read this. You're going to be like, seriously, that's in the Bible? That's crazy. 
I mean, this, this ain't found in the kitty Bibles here. So um, before we start, I want to give a little bit of context background. The story that we're looking at, Genesis 38, it's embedded actually in the story of probably someone a little bit more familiar to some of us, Joseph. And Joseph, um, he was the 11th of 12 sons of this man named Jacob. And these 12 sons were born to four different women. The thing about Joseph is his dad really liked him. He liked him better than all the other brothers because he was born to his favorite wife, who was Rachel. So, I mean, that causes all whole family dynamics, right? Everyone's beefing one another. Everyone's angry with each other. So um, Joseph's 10 older brothers hated him. They, they despised him. And, I mean, if we could do more digging into it, but he, he brought some of it upon himself. A little arrogant, you know, a little arrogant. But just prior to the story of Tamar, these 10 brothers, what they do is they beat up their little brother Joseph, throw him in a pit, and they're going to kill him. They just say, let's just get rid of this guy. Let's just kill him. And they have a fierce debate about it. But then Judah, who we're going to look at more in chapter 38, he persuades his brothers. Because Judah, he's, he's a slick cat, right? He's like, yo, instead of just killing him, why don't we sell him? And let's make some money off this deal. Why just kill him and be done? Let's make some money. So they have a passing caravan of Ishmaelite traders. And they end up selling their very own younger brother into slavery. And Judah, you get a little bit of a glimpse of his character. This dude's cunning. This dude's shady. He's, sl- he's slick. He doesn't just get rid of his brother he don't like, but he makes some money off it. And upon re- returning to their pops, they tell him, yeah, you know what? Joseph got tore up by a wild beast. Here's his, here's his robe. It's all bloodied up. So that's, that's where we come into as we look into Genesis 38. And it helps to know that because as much as we're talking about Tamar today, it, it also has to do with Judah. We're looking a lot at this man named Judah, who's, who's, a, who's a bad dude. So let me start in Genesis 38, and we're going to hit this a little portion in time, starting verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite, whose name was Hittah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise, raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen underground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And you're like, did you just say? And you're like, yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, it's there. I'm not making this stuff up. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So, so Jacob is mourning the death of his son Joseph, and we see Judah described as going off into this foreign country, and that was his first misstep. He didn't stay among uh, the people who worship God. He went into this uh, foreign place uh, and to live among the Canaanites, who are the very enemies of God. And he takes a step there to marry a Canaanite woman, and he proceeds to have these three sons. And his first son, Ur, he also marries this foreign Canaanite woman named Tamar. But we see Judah's oldest son, Ur, he's wicked in the sight of the Lord. So God kills him, leaving Tamar as a widow. And, and some of you are reading the duties of a, of a brother-in-law. And, and as we described, you're like, 
Oh, I, I don't want those kind of duties as a brother-in-law. That's just weird. Um, you got to understand the context here. This is not talking modern 2015, because um, yeah, that would be weird. That would be cause for church discipline. But when we're talking here in these mod, in these ancient times, there was a um, there was this tradition called leveret marriage. What that meant was, if you were a man and, and and as you got married, if you died before having a male heir, it was the responsibility of your next brother that's younger than you to. Uh, provide an heir for your line through your wife. And that, that was the tradition. So that, that's what's going on here with Onan. He was supposed to father through Tamar a son for Ur's line. You're like, whoa, this is in the Bible? This is insane. I would have paid attention with it. This is in the Bible. Um, but, but Onan, he's a sharp dude. And, and we're going over this stuff in the first first sermon, first uh, first service, and we had some kids in there. I didn't give any warning, so I'm imagining some of the rides home. Daddy, what's what's that word that the pastor was using? But what, what we got here, this dude Onan, he's sharp, right? He's a slick guy, so he's thinking, you know what? Because the majority of the inheritance is going to go to my big brother Ur, but now I got to provide an heir for Ur, and if I do that, that 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 son, he's going to receive the majority of the inheritance. So this shady dude, he's enjoying the pleasures of being with his, uh, with his sister-in-law. He's enjoying the pleasures without fulfilling any of the responsibility, as you see graphically described here. He used Tamar, his sister-in-law, for his gratification, but he refused to have a child by her. And, you know, only he and Tamar knew what's going on, right? Uh, and, you know, maybe people would even blame her. You know, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you doing what you're supposed to be doing? God knew. As much as this man Onan might think that he's getting one over, God knew, so God kills him too in judgment. So there's one more son, this, this son Sheila. He's still too young to be married. So you see Judah saying, hey, let's wait for him to grow up a little and then he'll fulfill the duties. Let's keep reading in verse 12. In course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah so his sheep, uh, to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to share his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat in the entrance to Enium, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her. And she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away. And taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. So, So you got Judah had told her they eventually, hey, yeah, the youngest son, Sheila, he'll, he'll be able to fulfill the responsibilities. But Judah, he's blaming her. He's thinking, my good, my good young sons, they keep dying because they're with this woman. It must be her fault. I'm not giving my baby boy. So he's left this woman widowed, childless, which in this day and age was probably the most vulnerable state that she could be put in. He has done harm to her. He has been really uh, wrong to her. So she's got no recourse here. I mean, we, we might look at what she did and say, ooh, that, that's pretty extreme. She had no recourse. This is what she ended up doing. And, and she dressed herself up as a temple prostitute. And, and this reveals more of who Judah is because she was pretty certain 
uh, I know my father-in-law, and if he sees this prostitute, he's going to stop. This is revealing she knows him pretty well and his character. That even though he's supposed to be in mourning, he's going to be looking for something. And so she, um, she conceals herself in this way. And when she asks, so, so how are you going to pay me? He says, I'll give you a goat. I got lots of goats. I'll give you a goat. She's like, how am I know you're going to give me a goat? You don't got a goat with you. I'll, I'll give you these things. And she asks for the signet, the, the cord, the different, the, uh, the walking staff, the seal and the cord walk staff. This is basically, this dude's not smart. He's so excited to get the deal done here. He's like, all right, here's my driver's license. Here's my credit card. You need Amex. What you take? And, and he's just like throwing to her. Basically, so yeah, yeah, this will seal it. Let's, let, let's do what we need to do. So after fulfilling his lust, he left and she returned home. Let's keep reading in verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at NAM at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who, whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Don't, don't, don't. All right, imagine. I can imagine Judah's like, oh, no way. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. She said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out with scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So Judah got home, and he sent a goat to pay the prostitute, but there's no prostitute. He's like, yo, where, where's this woman? She was standing by the temple, and, and he, there's no one like that. So he's like, oh, okay, that worked out. I mean, I lost my credit cards and my driver's license, but I kept my goat. So he, he's good. And then several months go by, and, and then he gets word, yo, your daughter-in-law, the one that's supposed to be in mourning, the one's not supposed to be, she's pregnant. Seriously, and you can imagine all the thoughts, dirty, little nasty Hopping around on my son like that. No morals, no dignity. They'll bring her out here. Three months pregnant. She's not even ashamed. She's not even hiding it. She, she's walking around because she knows, right? She knows what's going on. And she gives a message. Hey, yeah, the guy who got me pregnant, these belong to him. And Judah sees it. He's cut to the heart because God rebukes him. And he's, re- he's rebuked in his own heart realizing, yeah, you know what? I caused her to do these things. She did some bad stuff, but it's because of me. She's been more righteous than me. So rather than killing her, Judah brings her into his home. And he doesn't have relations with her anymore. He just brings her into his home. I mean, this is a crazy story, right? Some of you are like, seriously, that's in the Bible? This would have made Sunday school so much more interesting when I was a teenager. I mean, I mean, if I, I'll be honest. If, if I didn't know that this was in the Bible, I would kind of, like, if I just found this on the internet somewhere, I'd feel like I'm sinning while I'm reading it. I'm like... Ooh, I hope no one comes behind my shoulder and sees, catches me reading this stuff. I mean, it's, it's pretty sordid. It, it's scandalous stuff. You kind of want to take a shower after reading it, right? It like leaves that kind of like, ugh, doesn't feel right. I mean, if this story was your family, 
we were probably doing our best that no one finds out about it. This is kind of the stuff we keep hidden in that closet, right? And, you know, someone starts to mention, it just doesn't get brought up in polite company. I mean, this is the last story you'd want to tell your kids. I mean, imagine Tamar's boys. Imagine them asking their mom, so, so how did we come about? And our girls are starting to ask those questions, right? It's natural. How, how, who's mommy and daddy? I know we, we know you're a mommy. Who's daddy? How did you and daddy fall in love? Um, I, I actually propositioned your mother, and I'm not only your dad, but I'm grandpappy. I mean, this is, this is nuts. Can you imagine the family reunions? Can you imagine? Like, I mean, I know they didn't do Thanksgiving. Imagine the feast. Awkward. I mean, this is crazy stuff. The, I mean, imagine the identity issues. Some of us are struggling with our identity issues. Imagine you're these boys. Uh, dad, uh, granddad, which one? I mean, it's, it's just, this is insane. But as jacked up as the story is, I think there's a lot of significance why it was included in Matthew chapter 1 when we're presented with the in- introduction of this Jesus into our world. A few lessons that we can learn. I think one really clear one, that God's plans are bigger than your failures. God's plan are bigger than our failures. Because I'm imagining, how did Tamar assess her own life? I'm guessing Tamar, she's sitting there, you know, after all this going down, and she's lying there at night, as many of us do, and just evaluating her life. She said, man, life stinks. I've really jacked this thing up. And it's not just me. Others have jacked it up for me. This is horrible. She's experienced disappointment, betrayal, and every little, every little girl, right, dreams how their life is going to go, their knight in shining armor, how everything's going to be this beautiful, romantic story. And that's not her story. It's gone real bad. But you know what? She produced a son. And that son turned out all right. And he had a son who had a son who had a son who had a son who had a son. Who, had a son blah, blah, blah. who is the son of God? So, I mean, isn't that amazing? You and I know how the story ends. The stuff that was so jacked up, and I'm sure for even this young woman just caused her pain, we know how the story ends, that God is even using that. And, and I know when you and I, when we read genealogies, it sounds like, it feels like we're reading the phone book, right? When you get to those uh, Bible reading in one year and you hit those chapters, you're like, oh, no. Really, is anyone looking? To, I mean, does it count? Do I have to read the stuff? But I, I think those lists of names are really helpful because it reminds us that sometimes we need to zoom out and we need to zoom out from just like one individual and take almost like a 40, pers- 40 generation kind of perspective of life. Like look at the big picture. Because sometimes we have to be aware that we just don't assess our life merely by our own lifespan. That we don't just evaluate our life just by the 60, 70, 80 years that we have to live our life. Um, but we have to realize that our lives, even if they're not what we want them to be, we have to look at them with eternal perspective. That they're part of something much larger. That God's plans are bigger than our failures. Whether sexual or any other form of failure. And guys, we have to really resist this temptation that I know I have. And I'm sure some of you do. We have to resist this temptation to reduce God to the size of our biggest failure. Because sometimes who God is to us, it's merely the size of our biggest failures, and that's all he'll ever be. That's all we think he'll ever be able to do. We somehow limit God based on the things that we feel we've done wrong or that we're broken in 
or that were done wrongly to us. And we think that's all that God is. But guys, we have to be reminded God is bigger than that. Amen? God is bigger than that. Another lesson I think related to that, that it's not about where we come from, but it's about the legacy we leave. It's not about where we come from. It's the legacy we leave. Um, Because I think some of us, I mean, we can read these stories, and I I don't know how close you relate, but you can relate somewhere, right? You can relate to these things. Dysfunctional families, because a lot of us, we come from dysfunctional families and dysfunctional, broken situations. And at Christmas, I mentioned that earlier, sometimes it's really hard because it's such a family-oriented kind of time. It just brings back all the memories and all the pains and all the things that we've even suppressed and some things that we fight about continually. It's why holidays are not a joyous time for us, but it's one of the most painful times for us. And the truth is some of us are here and, and we even wonder if we're destined to make some of the same mistakes that people before us made. Sometimes we look at our parents and we wonder, man, am I destined to do the same stuff that they did that hurt me and that hurt other people? Am I destined to make the same mistakes, to have the same moral failure, to have just the same jacked upness in my life? Is that going to be me too? And we wonder if we inherited those genes. Honestly, I mean, it probably is the reason why some of us are deathly afraid of even having children. Because we're afraid of what's going to be passed down. But in the midst of that, we need to know the gospel hope and to be encouraged. Because your mom is not you. Your dad, your pops is not you. You're not them. You are a unique individual. And you don't have to make the same mistakes. I mean, be wise and to know uh, certain proclivities that might be here. But that's not your destiny. You don't have to do the same things that, that they did or that were done to you, you can leave a magnificent legacy with the help of Christ. That's totally different than what came before you. I mean, isn't that amazing? I mean, does that give anyone here hope? Uh, I mean, even with all Tamar went through, look at her legacy. And, and here's the thing. She doesn't know this. For Tamar, her life always feels jacked up. She doesn't know her legacy. This is why you need to pull back. And I'm hoping one, and there's somewhere in eternity where she does know this. And she is able to celebrate even through the worst things I went through. Even through the horrific stuff that this man put me through. God used it. Because look at my legacy. Who's the first woman mentioned in the New Testament? Tamar. Do you think about that? Who's the first woman mentioned by name in the New Testament? Tamar. She is listed as a mother of Christ. What a legacy. What a legacy. But sometimes you don't recognize that if you're just there on the ground floor. you got to pull back a little bit and look from eternal perspective that God is at work. And guys, we need to recognize here, you know, this is not just Judah and Tamar's story. This is God's story. And, and one of the reasons that God includes stories like this and others throughout the scriptures, um, as, as we talk about the story of the good news of Jesus Christ coming into our world as we think with Christmas, is to demonstrate God does not save good people. God's not in the business of saving good people or people who are trying hard to do the right thing. But God only saves sinners. God only saves broken sinners. This story and and really scores of it all throughout the Bible, um, it reminds us, it's just trying to break down this presumption that we have Christianities about being good people. Because there's nothing admirable about Judah here. He's a wretch. He's a punk. 
He's dishonest. He's more concerned with looking good than actually being good. He dishonors his family. And and though Tamar, I, I really think we can, and we could explore this more, I think she's a victim of Judah's evil, but she's resort to, uh, she's forced to resort to sordid, manipulative means to survive. I mean, there are no truly good guys in all the story here. And that's the whole Bible. The Bible is not merely a book of full of examples of people that you and I should be like. If so, the Bible is an epic fail. If the Bible is a story about here's how you should be like, epic fail. It's a waste. But this story and others like it, it, it's this relentless reminder that God's favor is not given to us because somehow we've obeyed enough or because we've been good or because we've earned God's kindness. Stories like Judah and Tamar, um, they're, they're placed to emphatically proclaim to us that nothing will derail the plans of God. They're put in here to remind us nothing will take the rails of God, that train that's moving high speed, nothing's going to get it off its track. Because even with all they did, Tamar and Judah are included very prominently in the story of God. Even with all they did, even with all that was done to them, they placed, they are placed very prominently in how God would reveal himself to this world through Christ. And here's where I, 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 as we bring it home a little bit, if God can redeem and use people like Judah and Tamar, there is no reason that he cannot save and redeem your life include you in his story. If he can take a man like Judah who did all that we described here, TMZ stuff, if he takes a woman like Tamar who was used and abused and had to do whatever she needed to do to survive, if he can take people like that and make them part of the lineage of his work of salvation and redemption in this world, how, how could he not do the same with us? No matter what you've been through. And maybe for some of you, you come in here today and you feel a lot of identification with Judah and Tamar. And you question at times, what good could come out of that? I'm not smart enough to know. All I know is God's in control. He's big. And our chaos, our failures, our sin, as great as it might look to us and as real as it is, it will not derail the purposes of God. And, and I want to give you that word to encourage you. Um, for some of us, it, what it means is to be honest about our failure. Church, some, I, you know, I love church, but if we're not diligent about this constantly, church becomes this place where we learn to put on really good masks. If we're not diligent about it, if we don't fight for the gospel, if we don't fight for the message of grace, church, what it becomes is the place that we learn to put on the most pretty of our masks. And we come put on our church mass and we look like we got it all put together and we look like there's no brokenness and we look like there's no failure and we look all happy to do and we look to come here and do our religious thing and check off the box. And, and, and we've got to be a community and we take down those masks, bring down those curtains. And for some of us, just to be honest with our failures before God, but hopefully with one another as well, be honest with our sin for some of us, you're more into Tamar position. Bad stuff has been done to you. You have been abused in many different ways. You've been wounded. You've been hurt. For some of us, if we're honest, we've been the Judah. 
We have not used our power to help people. We've done power plays. We have not used our prominent positions to advocate for those who are weaker. We've used our words to manipulate. We've tried to look better than we actually are. So, I mean, I think we can probably find identification in both of these people. But whatever it is, be honest about your sin. Be honest about your failure and bring it to God right now and trust that you really got to trust that God's love is bigger than your failure. Amen? God's love is bigger than your failure. Repent and believe that Jesus' death was enough to save you no matter what you've been through, no matter what you've done, no matter what has been done to you. You are not beholden to what came before you. So let me ask you to stand. And I'm going to invite our worship team to come up and lead us in some singing and respond through the word. But I want to give you a couple of moments to pray first. Um, And I'm going to do this, and I don't want you to get too weird up. I'm going to ask everyone to close your eyes with me. And don't worry, I'm not calling anyone up here to share publicly. This is just you and God right now. But in the safety of the space, as you stand before God and in this safe place, and hopefully you recognize this is a safe place, part of the story here is we have to learn how do we love one another when those masks do come down. But as you stand there, I want you to picture in your mind's eye, what is the deepest area of shame that comes to your mind when you think about what you're trying to hide? What is perhaps the area? Maybe it's a memory. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's something you did, and you've been working really hard to try to cover it up. Maybe it's something that was done to you, and you sought a lot of different ways to find healing and restoration. But as you stand here, what is like the deepest area of failure in your life? Deepest area of shame? What is the thing that if somehow someone projected it up on the screen, you would be horrified the most? Again, no one knows that here, so don't worry. But what is that in your life? And just sit on that for a moment. What is that in your life? What is that thing that you've been running from your whole life? What is that thing that you've been working so hard to establish yourself so that does not define you any longer? For some of you, it's sexual brokenness. For some of you, it's relational brokenness. For some of you, it's just been a lifestyle of deceit. For some of you, it's been slavery to certain addictions. So as you sit in that for a moment, here's where I want you to picture. Picture Jesus coming to you right now. Picture Jesus coming to you right now in that area of hurt in your life in that area of shame in your life, in that area of sin in your life. Picture Jesus coming right to you. What do you see him saying to you? What do you see him saying to you? Maybe some of you, you're picturing a little boy or a little girl because that's when pain happened to you. What do you see Jesus saying to that little boy or to that little girl? I imagine Jesus telling a lot of us, is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. You are no longer defined by those things. Your failure does not have to define you any longer. Let me define you. And I want to ask you, before you come up to receive communion this morning, if you're a Christian, sit on that a little bit and receive the grace of Jesus Christ, no matter how bad you feel your story is, and to know that Christ's story When he invites you into it, 
he rewrites it. He doesn't take it all away. It's still your story, but he redeems it. He uses it even for his good, for for your good and his glory. Let him do that in your life. If you're not a Christian, could I welcome you today to know the grace of this crazy, radical grace of this Jesus Christ. It's not just about trying to be better and better and better. It's about saying, because I'm not better, this is why I need help. And that he wants to give it to you. And if that's you, I would encourage you, talk to who you came with, talk to me, talk to someone, and let's pray together. And let's discover the radical grace of this Jesus who doesn't just ignore our failures and our sin, but he sees it clearly and he gives us a solution. So take a moment to pray on that, and we'll go into the time to respond. Picture Jesus coming right to you in that shame, and what does he say to you? sitting here we're so thankful for the gospel we're so thankful for this amazing news but lord sometimes i think that many of us we're not living fully in what you've purchased for us that we're still hiding that we still have areas of shame in our life that have caused us to learn how to hide we found a cave and we've built a good little compound there for a long time it's gotten comfortable even in its pain Lord, but I pray that you would help us to recognize that you want to free us in this place. You don't want us to you don't want us to live a life where we're just trying to make up for things that we feel bad about or things that were broken in our families or things that were broken in our relationships or things that we did that we really regret and some of us have been stewing in regret for a long time and we're even in church for that reason because we're trying to make up something to you. But Lord, would you show us the message of freedom that comes in knowing Jesus? that you know the worst about us, yet you love us in ways we can't even comprehend. In this way called the cross, that you took upon yourself shame and pain that we've been living in because you don't want us to carry it. And not just that you take those away, but now you even want us to be part of your story, to extend the story for people broken after broken generation. You want to continue to use our broken generation to keep it moving so help us to rest in your grace this morning lord to find freedom for some of us lord stop trying to pretend that we've got it all figured out but come to you as a little boy or a little girl wounded and in pain needing daddy to pick us up help us lord so i want to encourage you continue to pray you can pray there as long as you need to you can sing And if you're a Christian, whenever you're ready, come up both sides of the aisles, come up to the table, take a piece of the wafer in the middle and dip it in either cup and be reminded, remember the the radical grace of Jesus Christ. Grace, not just for good people who are trying, but grace for those people who have no other recourse in life, but to turn to God, that kind of grace and receive that and worship him in that and, and let's sing and let's fix our eyes in Christ together as we do that.